Support for Under the Radar comes from Wellwithall. Wellwithall believes that self-care is community care. Premium products crafted for your daily wellness, from sleep support to heart health to your daily regimen. 20% of Wellwithall's profits are committed to leading the fight for health equity. They won't stop until it is truly Wellwithall. Under the radar means hearing about things you didn't know you needed to know until you hear them. It's a serious look. To hear about the issues that don't get the attention they deserve. Under the radar doesn't get caught up in the day-to-day. Surfacing issues that are not talked about in mainstream media. I think it's something that connects us to each other. Under the radar is all about discovery. I can be guaranteed voices I haven't heard before. But also the questions. Under the radar is one step ahead. I'm Callie Crossley. This week on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley... President Biden makes good on a campaign promise issuing an executive order banning discrimination of sexual orientation and gender identity, correcting the record on the historic importance of newly confirmed and openly gay Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg. Plus, the human rights campaign highlights recent dramatic strides towards workplace equality. It's our LGBTQ roundtable. Later in the show, it's a special encore presentation of my interview with Tochi Onobuchi, author of Riot Baby. The novel's themes speak to today's ongoing national discussion about race and legacy. But first, joining the conversation are Grace Sterling Stowell, executive director of Bagley, the Boston Alliance of LGBTQ Youth. Hi, Grace. Hi, Callie. Glad to be here today. I'm glad to have you. Also joining us is Jansen Wu, Executive Director of GLAD, GLBTQ Legal Advocates and Defenders. Hi, Jansen. Hello. Thanks so much for having me. And also joining us, E.J. Graff, author and managing editor for The Monkey Cage at The Washington Post. Hey there, Callie. Wonderful to be here. Well, it's wonderful to have all of you. There's a lot of positive news, uh, it seems, for once. Usually we're, we're, we don't start that way. But let's start with uh, President Biden's executive order on discrimination on gender identity or sexual orientation. As I said, he promised this on the campaign, and this was one of the early executive orders. I want to get all of your response to it. I'll start with you, Jansen. Well, I mean, this is a big deal, and we are just so thrilled about this executive order. Uh, what this executive order does first is ensure that the federal government actually follows what the Supreme Court has said is the law, which is that you can't fire someone for being LGBTQ. Uh, but then it goes a step farther, and it says, and that same holding from the U.S. Supreme Court um, case from last June, the Bostick case, That applies to other areas of the law as well, too. And most importantly, areas such as education, public spaces like restaurants and businesses. Um, And that is really important because we know that LGBTQ people are so vulnerable in all different aspects of the life. Um, And so we absolutely applaud this executive order. Grace? Yes, this is so exciting. As as I've said before, when when from the highest level of of politics, you know, in the administration, when uh, negative messages are sent, it has such a devastating impact on on uh, a community, including young people. And so, to have the president uh, issue this executive order uh, reversing that and really affirming uh, LGBT folks. It, it it not only uh, sends a very strong message that discrimination won't be tolerated, but it also sends a message that, that uh, that's broader than that, that really affirms the identities and experience of all all people in the nation. EJ. 
Well, I'll just say that after four years of feeling um, unremittingly miserable, it's really nice to have um, to have a a shift toward uh, doing something as basic as saying we should not be discriminated against for gender identity or sexual orientation, which is where most of the country is. Um, But uh, executive orders aren't going to do enough, right? That an executive order, as we just saw, lasts only as long as that executive is in office. And we still need the Equality Act. And, um, well, that is that something that you feel EJ I'm has? I'm going to let Jansen tell you right. what the Equality Act <laughs> Okay, no, I know I was, no, my question was whether or not you thought that it had a chance now. Because uh, while it is true that these executive orders must be translated into legislation to have some uh, permanent change, um, it, it, is the atmosphere different enough? Um, because a lot of people are still there who were around uh, during the last administration. Uh, I'll jump in here. Absolutely, it has a chance. And it has a chance because this is a bipartisan issue. Um, Republican legislators and Democratic legislators um, have supported non-discrimination protections for LGBTQ people. And this is an issue that is supported by over 70% of America. And it really was only due to you know, the Republican leadership of the Senate in the last four years that has prevented it from moving forward. It's already passed the House. And so um, we are hopeful. Um, and we also have to hold our officials accountable and make sure that they move this important piece of legislation forward, which would ban discrimination against gay and transgender people in areas such as employment, education, restaurants and businesses, credit um, and jury service, to name a few areas. So there are, I guess, in the 30 percent, these anti-trans feminists, um, you know, that's the terminology, they call themselves TERFs, trans exclusionary radical fem- feminists who believe trans women are a threat to women who are assigned female at birth. And they are uh, mad at Biden, President Biden, for assigning an order that reverses President Trump's definition of gender as, quote, biological sex, unquote. Grace, I'll let you respond to that. Well, you know, first, it's it's always so concerning that such a small um, minority group of of, of uh, people who, you know, they certainly don't represent the larger population, uh, nor are they representing a real concern. But they're but they're getting a lot of press and attention, as though there there is some some problem to to the safety and protection of all all women and all people, and so. Uh, you know, I, I, I'm wishing that the, the focus wasn't on, on that small group of, of folks, but I think it says a lot that they're siding with one of the most anti-LGBT organizations and anti-human rights, civil rights, uh, organ, um, um, not organizations, but um, administrations that we've ever seen, and in, in certainly in the modern world. And uh, uh, it, it raises the question of, of really what, what that larger commitment is. You know, for an, a group of folks who see, see themselves as feminists and see themselves as advocating on behalf of, of women, uh, that in fact they're, they're supporting an administration or the decisions of an administration that have done the exact opposite. Uh, EJ, do you want to weigh in? The, let's just remember that they are the um, inheritors from Phyllis Schlafly and that idea that womanhood is um, a special thing that um, comes in one 
one package, one flavor. Um, and if you in any way change that um, old style version of womanhood, uh, you end up with same-sex marriage, unisex bathrooms, and women serving in the military, which of course, as we know, has brought the world to an end. So that was ironic. I just want to be clear. Um, so it, it, it's it, I, I understand that strain of feminism, which is very um, biodeterminist. Let's just say that that who who you are is determined. Um, at birth in Mm, certain ways. It's very different than the broader, um, um, it's very different than the broader strain of feminism today, which has a much more expansive version of gender. So they have a claim on the word, but it is a minority claim on the word. Something, Jansen, you want to add? Oh, um, I mean, transgender women are women and transgender rights our women's rights. And, you know, I think that, you know, it's important to frame that in this way um, when, you know, our opponents are trying to make this seem like, you know, uh, a, you know, a limited pod or either or situation. This really is not the same kind of forces in our society that dehumanize and demean transgender people and transgender women are the same ones who um, believe in gender stereotypes that have harmed women for, for generations. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and here with me is the managing editor of The Monkey Cage at The Washington Post, E.J. Graff, Bagley's Grace Sterling Stowell, and Glad's Jansen Wu. It's our LGBTQ roundtable. Let's take a listen to Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg during a Senate confirmation hearing last month. He was confirmed um, this week in an 86 to 13 vote. Here he is. I want to thank President Biden for trusting me with this nomination. And I'd like to take a moment to introduce my husband, Chastin Buttigieg, who's uh, here with me today. I'm uh, really proud to have him by my side. I also want to take this chance to thank him for his many sacrifices and his support in making it possible for me to pursue public service. Now, it may seem strange to all of you in this conversation, but there actually was a fight about the historic uh, moment of uh, Pete Buttigieg being named an openly gay uh, cabinet member. Um, Some people said the first. And then Richard Grinnell was very quick, who worked under the Trump administration, to come forward and say he's the second because he, Richard Grinnell, was the first. Um, He served in the uh, Trump cabinet designated acting director of national intelligence uh, last year. So I think it's, is it ironic? Is it, what is it that, you know, there's a fight about the historic importance of this uh, nomination? I, I don't think any of you could have imagined this kind of discussion would be happening at na- right now. What do you say, Grace? <laughs> well, no matter what, it is so exciting that uh, an openly gay man was affirmed as a cabinet secretary and in this role and 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 thanking his husband, you know, and just even listening to that, uh, you know, brief snippet, you know, just brought tears to my eyes because I'm, you know, I, I certainly never thought I would see that in my lifetime. And and so, it, you know, that's exciting. And whether he was technically the first or the second, he's certainly the first who is really supporting our community and a larger, broader agenda of human rights. Uh, for all people. And so that that's something to be celebrated. Jansen. 
Well, I was I was just joking with my husband the other night that now every little gay boy can dream of growing up to be Secretary of Transportation one day. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, I mean, joking aside, it is a big deal. And I know I keep saying that, but it's been a, a, a month of big deals. And this is certainly up there. Um, and I say it um, not only because we know representation matters, um, but also because you know, I think for those of us who may live in more inclusive, progressive bubbles, we kind of forget that there is still deep-seated discomfort with kind of gay male relationships um, and affection. And the fact that, you know, Pete Buttigieg, you know, regularly hugs and kisses his husband in public spaces and in the media, like all of that is really important given how much we still have to go in getting people comfortable with the idea of gay male couples and relationships and love. Uh, EJ? I don't think I have anything to add to what they said. All right. Uh, Well, let me go forward and say, to Jansen's point about a month of firsts and amazing kinds of things that I'm sure many of you never thought would happen, uh, President Biden also nominated uh, Dr. Rachel Levine to serve as Assistant Health Secretary. Uh, she would make history as the first out transgender federal official to be confirmed uh, by the Senate. And before we discuss that, let me uh, let you take a listen to Rachel Levine. She came from, um, or she comes from Pennsylvania, where she's uh, been the top health official there. So here she is reading a statement last summer addressing insults and harassment she faced as the top health official in Pennsylvania. I have no room in my heart for hatred, and frankly, I do not have time for intolerance. My heart is full with a burning desire to help people, and my time is full with working towards protecting the public health of everyone in Pennsylvania from the impact of the global pandemic due to COVID-19. So by all accounts, um, she's uh, supposed to be fantastic uh, in terms of uh, her expertise in the health arena. And um, I I don't think there's going to be any problem with her being um, uh, confirmed to the Senate. But I'll do the round robin again, Grace. How about this? Uh, Dr. Rachel Levine, (laughs) Assistant Secretary of Health. Well, well, again, uh, certainly so exciting and groundbreaking, and and especially since the the, the Trump administration had had targeted transgender people and transgender women specifically in in so many ways uh, to to have now the Biden administration uh, not only extend protections to LGBT people, but also to to uh, uh, to have a, a trans woman in this role is is you know not only groundbreaking but i think it's it's affirming in a lot of different ways to say we're celebrating excellence we're celebrating ability uh clearly by all indications she has the the uh the skills for the job and 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 so that's a great opportunity and sends an absolutely strong message uh to to folks on all sides of of the the issues that that uh, where where this administration stands in terms of of excellence and moving forward. EJ, were you surprised by this appointment? Not at all. I, no, um, Biden is really working hard, as far as I can tell, to live up to his promise um, to have the most diverse administration in history. And 
I, I look at someone like this and I say that this is somebody who has got to be better than great, right? In order to be the mm. first Senate confirmed transgender federal official, you got to be spectacular. So it, it, it's, it suggests to me that we're getting a real star um, as well as all the things that Grace just said about um, the health issues that uh, the the different angle on health issues for more people um, that will be addressed this way. Mm-hmm. Jansen, you want to add anything? Yeah, just two things um, on the Biden piece. Um, Biden, this is he is he's his relationship with the transgender community is not new. He has known transgender people. He has supported transgender people for a long, long time, including Sarah McBride, who became the first openly trans state senator in Delaware, his home state. Um, so this isn't just this is something that I do believe he feels, you know, deep down. Um, but I would say that Dr. Levine's kind of elevation leadership here could not come at a more critical time. We are seeing a wave of state bills that would effectively ban transgender youth from getting um, the medical care that they need. It would criminalize physicians and parents who supported those trans youth. Uh, it is really kind of uh, one of the most you know, draconian attacks we've seen on trans people and trans youth um, ever. And so having Dr. Levine kind of there to provide the evidence, science-based uh, realities regarding trans, trans medical care as a trans person will be so important. Well, let's talk about that. I was about to transition to looking at some of this backlash at the state level, um, uh, anti-LGBTQ backlash. What about these bills moving through state legislatures? And, and, and listeners should know that most of the state legislatures in the country are Republican-led. Um, now, that doesn't necessarily have to translate into anti-trans or anti-LGBTQ. But for a long time, I think it's fair to say that the the platforms of the party have uh, not been uh, supportive. Or And more importantly, in the last four years under the Trump administration, as, as some of his uh, rules and regulations got more and more harsh, um, the party did not uh, oppose that. So that's where we are. But on the state legislatures is where these things um, get concretized. And it's, uh, to your point, Jansen, it appears to be across the country. Let's talk about some of that. Let's talk about that, if you would. Uh, Sure. I mean, just to follow up on the um, medical bans, I mean, these are the most extreme political attacks we have seen on trans people in recent memory. And they would put the lives and well-being of transgender youth at risk. Um, And they're just not based in, you know, evidence-based medicine at all. Uh, which supports transgender youth um, in the healthcare that they need. Um, so, you know, trans children, like all children, just they have the best chance to thrive when they're supported and they can get the healthcare they need. And these bills would take that away from them. So the other area, Grace, where there seems to be a focus, uh, an anti-trans youth focus in state legislators, legislatures, um, has to do with transgender participation in student athletics. And this particular piece I'm looking at uh, notes uh, Oklahoma, South Carolina, Tennessee, Kentucky, North Dakota, and New Hampshire, our neighbor, and Florida have already introduced bills to restrict this. You know, it's so important that 
all young people have the opportunity to uh, participate in any school activities, including sports. You know, it, it's about uh, you know leadership. It's about team building. It's about participation, uh, working together uh, towards common goals, and to unilaterally single out one group of young young people and and to to try to discriminate or it not only harms them but it harms all young people. It it every young person deserves uh, the opportunity. And we know that that being excluded or discriminated against not only harms them in terms of participation, but also their, their general success in school. So these are these are really harmful, devastating attempts uh, to to uh, single out uh, one group of young person uh, and, and, and ultimately through their families as well uh, to be targeted. And so there's there's. There's absolutely no, there's no reason to support them and many reasons why they'd cause harm. Um, just to put a button on this, the New Hampshire bill, HB 68, would expand the definition of quote-unquote child abuse to encompass parents' provision of gender-affirming care, EJ. Um, and the bills in Alabama, Missouri, and Indiana would make it a crime for physicians to give any gender-affirming care to a minor. That's pretty harsh. Those are very harsh. I, I, I've also, um, it, it's also true that the bills that were introduced last year almost all failed. And the one, I believe it was in Ohio, Idaho, um, and uh, Jansen can correct me if I'm wrong, um, that did make it has gotten tangled up in the courts. So it, it, the, these are somewhat symbolic um, they're, they're not entirely symbolic. I mean, just the way um, bills uh, ten, uh, 20 years ago, bills against same-sex marriage in various states were symbolic because they weren't, same-sex marriage wasn't happening, uh, marriage equality wasn't happening there. Um, they, have, they have harm in that they make people feel terrible and fill you with self-hate and give... Um, permission to attack uh, whoever it is is being targeted by a bill like this. But at the same time, it doesn't mean that it's going to have um, actual effect. So these are in some ways political rallying bills to get um, culture warriors to the polls to elect the kind of legislators who would back these bills, whether or not they're able to pass and whether or not they uh, stay in place. If we remember, um, North Carolina passed its restrictive bathroom bill. It didn't let um, trans children go to the bathroom in schools. And um, the, the wrath of the country came down on them and they reversed it. So <laughs> it, it's important to remember these are culture war bills in addition to being attacks on trans youth. Well, I'm wondering, um, from a positive end to this, and maybe some of those uh, bills this year um, or in the next sessions of these state legislatures may not have a chance or as big a chance as they as the original sponsors may have thought because a record 574 LGBTQ candidates ran um, last year, and a whole bunch of them won, and a number of them are now in state legislatures across the country. For example, there is Michelle Rayner Goolsby, the first openly queer black female state legislator in Florida. 
Uh, Taylor Small, first openly transgender person elected to the Vermont legislature. Stephanie Byers, the first transgender person of color elected of color elected to a U.S. state legislature. Um, and Marie Marie Turner, the first openly non-binary lawmaker in the U.S. As a matter of fact, before you all respond to that. Let's take a listen. This is Oklahoma's Marie Turner, the first non-binary state legislator, speaking to CBS News about the public's response to their campaign. The point of running is that visibility, right? Uh, Making sure that folks with our shared lived experiences are making the decisions um, uh, about things that affect our everyday lives. And I think that is a message that just about everybody can get behind. Um, And so... While there was some pushback here and there, I think the majority of uh, folks clearly um, really supported uh, this campaign or, or this movement that we've built, right? So I think they were saying, hey, if you have a voice in the place that makes the bills, you know, <laughs> that, that makes a difference. Jansen. <laughs> uh, absolutely, it makes a difference. And some of the most powerful moments I've seen and working in state legislatures on LGBTQ issues is when, you know, that trans or gay colleague of the folks on the floor speaks up and talks about their personal lives. I mean, you can't, I mean, it's, you can't replicate that any other way. Uh, but I just did want to come back to um, the bills before and, and maybe make an amendment to EJ's point that she made earlier, which is that, um, you know, yes, we were successful in killing all the bills except for one last year. That was the Idaho bill, um, which is now in the courts. Um, in New Hampshire, uh, you know, the the legislature just turned Democrat from Democrat to Republican. And so the threat is much more real there. And so to the extent that people are in New Hampshire, um, you know, we really do urge you to, you know, reach out to your legislators and ask them to oppose this bill. Um, but it's also, you know, we've been able to kill these bills because, it's taken a lot of work by like national and local volunteers and activists. Um, and that's time and resources that people can be spending doing much better. Um, and even if they may not ultimately go into effect, which many may, right? We don't know. These are real threats. But even if they don't, that harm, uh, particularly to young people, is profound. And there are public health studies that show that in states where there are these really kind of vicious, battles around the dignity of a person's identity, um, that there is, you know, um, negative repercussions to people's well-being. I, I just have I, to point I, out, I, go ahead. EJ, I don't mm-hmm. want to say they're meaningless. I, I, I really don't. I, I, I know all that, Jansen. My apologies. Uh, no, no. I, I, that's why it was an amendment to what you said. That's all. Okay. I just want to point out that not only um, is Marie Turner... Um, the first out non-binary lawmaker in Oklahoma, just to add a little something for people who are really freaked out by this. She's a Muslim. <laughs> she wears a hijab. Um, and the, the, this is really, this is wild. Um, in 2019, the Oklahoma state legislature blocked an imam from conducting the chamber's daily prayer. So now she's the first practicing Muslim elected to the Oklahoma state legislature. I mean, you just can't make this up. This is like, this is real life. This is amazing. Grace. <laughs> well, and I think that's exactly it, that that uh, our country is increasingly diverse in terms of um, all, all sorts of dimensions of diversity. And, uh, and that 
that's increasingly being reflected in people who are getting elected to office or participating in leadership positions and and in and, and Congress and so on and so forth. And and that's reality. That that's who that's who we are as a diversity of of this country, and it's and it's only increasing. And in many ways, the the culture wars, as we've talked about, is is really a backlash and and a and a real attempt. To, to roll that back, and you just can't because they, they, this is who we are, and these are uh, uh, the, the the folks who make up the the nation, and will continue to. So I think that while it it, it you know everyone you know had, knows what it's like to be you know for the first or one of the first or the only and one of the only, but 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 that that's only going to continue to change. And so I think it's something to celebrate that people are getting elected that are representing diverse constituencies and and diverse perspectives and that can only make us better as a nation as, as communities and as a nation if, if we're all able to bring our full selves to the leadership of and, and the challenges facing all of us um, Jansen had mentioned earlier that Sarah McBride um, was known to President Biden because uh, she is now the highest ranking transgender state legislator in America she's 30 by the way um, just to make that point. Um, so one wonders uh, in terms of, you know, just a relationship that uh, at least he knows her anyway. And he, as Jansen said, and all of you said before, uh, was pretty committed to making sure that he could remove discrimination. And I think one of the biggest things that he has attempted to reverse um, and I say that because, you know, still need legislation. But in an executive order, he repealed the Trump era ban on transgender troops. You know, that was a big one, um, as all of you remember, because it came in a tweet from President Trump. The armed services were completely shocked. They had been moving in a different direction. So just speak to the importance of this. I know we've talked about a lot of overturning, but this one, this one's significant um, in a different kind of way, I would say, Jansen. Absolutely. I mean, Glad has been fighting this ban in the courts for the last three years, and we are just thrilled uh, to see the end of the ban finally, um, particularly for you know folks like Nick Talbot, whose lifelong dream has been to you know serve in the military. Um, he was working with a military recruiter at the time. President Trump issued his tweet and really just destroyed his his childhood dreams. And then you know during a period when we were able to put the ban on hold for a couple of years, he started he in a ROTC program and then wasn't allowed to continue with that. So just the people, like the real life people who've had to go through this roller coaster the last three years, not knowing what their futures look like, for them, they are all breathing an enormous sigh of relief. And um, I just just want to underscore that the 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 folks in charge of the military were surprised by this and had you know, and in fact, it, it it was argued that defense, the former defense secretary, uh, Mattis, slow walked the executive order because he didn't want to implement it because that just wasn't the direction that the military was trying to go. So it became a whole thing, as you know, and he ended up resigning. But not just for that, but but that was one of the reasons. Uh, anyway, I just uh, I just thought that's interesting. And again, there has to be some legislation just to make sure that. The next person that comes in doesn't try to flip it back, if that be the case. Um, I want to end on a good note. Uh, the Human Rights Campaign every year releases its 19th Corporate Equality Index. And despite all of the upheaval because of COVID and the economy, we're talking about businesses, um, they're pretty psyched about how many companies have 
gone up and improve their LGBTQ policies. I mean, it's it's quite a lot. Um, they, 767 businesses met all the criteria to earn a 100% rating and the designation of being a best place to work for LGBTQ equality. What do you think about that, Grace? Well, of course, that's great. And again, you know, it, it, it reflects the diversity of our workforce and a recognition that, you know, not only is it the right thing to do, but it's also good business that really serving everyone and, and affirming uh, everyone is is a best practice and a best business practice as well. So, and many organizations are also rooted in their communities and working with local groups and and so forth. And so, it just it only makes sense that they're getting to know people in in and all of who they are and hiring increasingly hiring LGBT folks. And so, the fact that uh, uh, more more businesses are are, are achieving you know, uh, higher numbers on the scale is just a recognition of the progress that we're continuing to make, even even in the face of challenges and backlash. Um, EJ, Wayfair of Boston rose from a score of 85 um, to 100 percent, and Phillips of Cambridge, Massachusetts, rose from a score of 90 to 100. What do you think? Well, they are here in Cambridge. They better be doing better. Um, <laughs> I, I, will, I will say that the HRC... Um, corporate equality index has been a tool of power politics um, ever since they started it. They they know that once they once they started it, organizations have really had to work to keep getting their high score because otherwise they get um, they get pushback from consumers and potential employees and so on. And it's really been a very successful uh, approach to politics there. It's, it's a pretty impressive tool to use. Um, it's been a pretty impressive tool. I want to go back really briefly one to one thing about um, elected LGBTQ officials. Uh, the research shows that just as with women, when we run, we win at the same rates as um, non-LGBTQ or non-women. Um, where it, the issue is whether people feel comfortable running. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's well, that's always an issue for marginalized groups, you know, um, or people yeah. who have uh, traditionally been pushed to the edges of, of uh, trying to enter into politics, uh, as we've seen this study after study about that. So that's pretty interesting to, to know in this instance. All right, you get the last word, Jansen, because we want a last good word. What about these companies that uh, EJ has pointed out, uh, realize they got to step it up or they will at least be publicly shamed? <laughs> well, I will say I was just looking at the list of the companies that you know hit 100 for the first time, and I was... Very thankful to see Chipotle was on there. And so now I can, you know, eat at Chipotle feeling a little bit better about my purchase. Um, and now I'm just waiting for Chick-fil-A to finally get their act together because it's been many, many years since I've ever <laughs> enjoyed one of their delicious sandwiches. So I'm not holding my breath, but we'll see. <laughs> okay. Well, we'll have to leave it there. I thank all of you for joining me today. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much, Callie. Grace Sterling Stoll is the executive director of Bagley, the Boston Alliance of LGBTQ Youth. Jansen Wu is the executive director of GLAD, GLBTQ Legal Advocates and Defenders. And E.J. Graff, author and editor for The Monkey Cage at The Washington Post. Thanks all. 
Coming up, it's a special Black History Month encore edition of our interview with author Tochi Onabuchi, a daughter who has a special gift and a son whose birth in the middle of a riot sets him up for a painful life's journey. Their entangled stories drive the plot in the novel Riot Baby. It's our repeat selection for February's Bookmarked, the Under the Radar Book Club. That's next. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. And now for the part of the show we call Lanya, that's Creole for something extra. In tribute to this February's Black History Month, we're replaying last year's discussion of the book Riot Baby. At first glance, Mama, Ella, and Kevin seem to live in a here and now achingly familiar to a number of black families. But very quickly, Riot Baby reveals itself to be a time-traversing tale of the future infused with the frustration and rage linked to incidents of the recent past. Tochi Anabuchi takes readers on the journey of siblings navigating their past, current, and future worlds. Riot Baby is our February selection for Bookmarked, the Under the Radar Book Club. And author Tochi Anabuchi joins me from New Haven, Connecticut. Hello, Tochi. Hi, how are you? I'm happy and I'm glad to have you. A very exciting book. Uh, So congratulations on that. Thank you. Let's begin at the beginning. Where did the idea for the book come from? So it actually, I would say, came to be in, I guess, the closest approximation of its current form, probably sometime late 2015. Hmm. This was at a time where there was, I guess you could say, a certain ubiquity of videographic footage of police-involved killings. And so I think at this point, you know, we've seen the deaths of Eric Garner. We've seen Michael Brown just left to sort of lie on the on the pavement in Ferguson. George Zimmerman has been acquitted of the shooting death of Trayvon Martin and so many others, so many others. And I remember feeling at the time, having just graduated from law school, a sense of uh, impotence and this feeling that there was this general futility about it all. But also, too, one thing that I started thinking about was Rodney King. Mm -hmm. That was one of the seminal moments and memories of my childhood was seeing the Rodney King footage. I believe it was a morning before we went to school. It was broadcast, I think, on the Today Show. Mm. And so I remember uh, very vividly that being a thing, but not quite understanding its full import uh, and and how it was connected to everything that followed in L.A. But immediately this linkage started to form in my mind of this continuity with regards to black Americans and police-involved shootings. You know, you had uh, Amadou Diallo, you had Sean Bell. It's sort of in between the in then and now. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. 
This felt very much like a story that needed to get out of me. Uh, There was a lot that was sort of roiling in my mind, and I had just started a job at the office of the New York State Attorney General with their Civil Rights Bureau. And so I was doing a lot of work with regards to civil rights, and particularly with regards to youth and incarceration in the New York State prison and jail system. Uh, So I was being surrounded by all these different manifestations of state-sanctioned oppression of black Americans, of black and brown Americans. And the way that I personally process the world is through writing. And so this was in many ways a way for me to deal with a lot of the feelings that I was having at the time. So listening to you and that explanation of where the book came from, somebody could think, wow, this is an interesting nonfiction book. No, it's speculative (laughs) fiction. It's science fiction. So a lot of stuff is happening in here that's grounded in the reality you just described, but other stuff is happening. I just want to make that clear to people that (laughs) this is a novel and uh, you have envisioned two main characters. One is Ella and the other is Kev. Uh, Just a brief bit about who Ella is and who Kev is. So Ella and Kev are sister and brother, and they grow up essentially in the shadow of the L.A. uprising that followed the acquittal of the four officers who were initially charged with the beating of Rodney King. Kev is actually born during the the uprising itself as the city is sort of lighting itself on fire. And Ella is is about, you know, I'd say seven or eight years older than him in that regard. And, you know, the book follows Kev's birth in South Central. It moves to their childhood in Harlem. And then subsequently, uh, Kev is incarcerated at Rikers. So the story follows him through that, finally sort of returning to the West Coast uh, in a section that is set in Watts uh, in the very near future. What I was impressed by is that it feels like it's today, but it could be any of these last few years in the decade, as you've described. And so when something, when a story is grounded in a today kind of reality, it has a, a different kind of edge to it when you go off into imagined worlds, because it's it's quite grounded in something that most people can recognize. And that was an interesting twist and turn to me. And I, I believe it's kind of a trend in speculative fiction now. What do you think? I do think so. I think... Mm-hmm. You know, when you think about it, science fiction is an inherently colonialist genre. You know, Mm -hmm. when you think back to its beginnings, you know, it was a bunch of white dudes and it was all about uh, going to alien landscapes. And, you know, the hero was someone who took over, which, you know, when you think about it, sounds eerily familiar. But what we've been seeing, I'd say, over the past, you know, at least a decade is this Subjects of former empire have started to, you know, infuse the genre with their own visions. And you have this, in a sense, decolonization of the genre. And so all of these people are bringing their their histories and their realities to the writing of speculative fiction, of science fiction and fantasy. And I think also you see a lot of them taking advantage of the genre's power to operate as reality and metaphor in the same instance so Mm -hmm. that alien Mm -hmm. invasion stories or first contact stories are also stories about colonialism. Post-apocalyptic genre, the dying earth subgenre, is a parable about climate change, Uh, the the X-Men and the civil rights struggle. That sort of thing. And uh, that was something that I wanted to sort of – that was a power that I wanted to redouble in a sense with 
this story with Riot Baby, I wanted to take that and apply it to a recognizable America, a recognizable situation, Mm -hmm. and, you know, use the imagination to extrapolate. You know, Mm -hmm. what would it look like? You know, science fiction is also always asking that question, what would it look like? And the question that infused the birth of Riot Baby is, what would it look like to obliterate the police state? Mm. So I want to give people a chance to hear your voice on the page. (laughs) Uh, So I'm going to ask you to read from, uh, beginning from page 51. Mm-hmm. And we should say as a frame for that, Kev, who, as you mentioned, is younger than Ella, had been sort of on a straight and narrow path, the kid in the neighborhood that everybody thought was going to make it and get to school and, you know, get out of the neighborhood and do great things. And yet he gets caught up in a situation that's not unfamiliar. I mean, he's been navigating this road and doing well. And then This is an example of the kinds of stuff that he had to try to navigate during his time as a young man. Certainly. Yeah, he's very much the one who looks like he's going to get out, but the world happens to him, I guess you could say. But then I'll see an opening and make a dash for the door, and one of the cops will slam into me and pin me against the counter, my face smashing into the top while they hit me twice in the ribs and twist my arms behind me, and the other one raises my head and slams it into the glass again, so hard it cracks and blood spills out of the cut above my eye. I'll know it's winter break because I'll fight against the cop's grip to raise my head, and I'll see Jamila standing there behind the counter, brown eyes wide with horror. In that moment, I'll feel a part of the universe split off, like a branch snapped off a tree trunk, and that piece of the universe has me in it with her. I'm standing in front of the counter, and Jamila's back from winter break, and I'm on winter break too because I've been busy at school learning things and building things, and we'll talk about the things people talk about when they know that they're going to fall in love and get married and raise beautiful, brilliant, peaceful kids. But right now, I just wish she didn't recognize me. I'd give anything for her not to have recognized me. I'm Callie Crossley, and you're listening to Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. This is an encore of our February 2020 discussion with my guest Tokchi Anabuchi, author of Riot Baby, his first adult novel, and our February selection for Bookmarked, the Under the Radar book club. Now, in your book, you have references, because you can go anywhere you want to go because it's speculative fiction, mm. to a lot of real history, though. And you don't really pause to explain a lot of it. Sometimes you just reference it and put it in the context of what's happening and keep going. Why did you want to do that? Why did you want to? We know about Rodney King because that had a pivotal moment for Kev in his life. But other references, for example, to the, the killing of the nine people in the Charleston church, Mother Emanuel. Why do that? So one thing that I I thought a little bit about while drafting Riot Baby was audience. And I think, you know, the, the question of audience at this stage and I think in this day and age in particular, given recent controversies in the publishing industry, is a very heavy and weighted question. Who are you writing for? And I wondered a little bit who I was writing for, uh, and I ultimately came to the the answer that I was writing for myself. Um, this was very much an act of catharsis, but at the same time, I did recognize that there were people in my imagined audience who felt the way that I felt about a lot of what was going on and would hopefully see those feelings reflected in the work in that it would sort of hit the tuning fork inside them. 
and it would resonate with them. So, you know, my imagined audience knew what I was referring to uh, with regards to the reference to Charleston. They knew what I was referring to with regards to, you know, 1967 in Detroit. Uh, They knew what I was referring to in all the instances of police-involved violence that occur throughout the book. You know, they knew what I was referring to with regards to various references during Kev's time in Rikers. And I didn't want to you know, stop and explain a lot of those things, in part because, you know, on a craft level, that would have interrupted the narrative that would have, you know, sort of put the brakes on a story that I wanted to have go at full tilt. Uh, I wanted it to move full speed ahead. And I didn't want there to be any sort of roadblocks. I also wanted the reader who didn't necessarily get those references to to do the work of understanding them. If they feel compelled to look up any of the things that are referenced in the book afterwards and educate themselves, that was something that I wanted to push them to do as well. But also, too, with regards to these characters, we spend the entirety of the book you know, essentially in their heads or just over their shoulders. And they would know all of these references uh, without having to have them explained in the middle of the narrative. And so I wanted to simulate that experience as much as possible. Tochi Anabuchi is the author of Riot Baby. It's his first adult novel and our February 2020 and 2021 selection for Bookmarked, the Under the Radar Book Club. It is available in bookstores and online now. You've moved from, in this book, young adult science fiction, which is what you usually do, and decided to, speaking of audience, go toward an older audience. Though I have to say a lot of adults read YA. Why? Funny story about that. I I came into... uh, young adult literature almost by accident, I guess you could say. Everything that I'd written before my very first novel, you know, in the decade and a half that I'd been trying to get published had been geared towards an adult audience. Generally speculative fiction, science fiction, and fantasy. But everything that I was reading at the time was adult fiction. And so I knew very, very, very little about uh, YA. But while I was in law school, I befriended a young woman, Tiffany Lau, who would eventually become my very first young adult editor. At the very end of law school, I'd written this science fiction novel that I was immensely proud of. This was my best work yet. And I spent the following summer, when I should have been studying for the bar exam the first Mm -hmm. time, trying to sell this. And when I, I ran into trouble, I lamented on Facebook of all places, and she reached out, and we talked about the book. And while she didn't feel it was a good fit for the young adult audience, she did want to work with me. So, you know, we put our heads together and I came up with the idea for Beast Made of Night and I started writing. It was my very first time writing any young adult fiction, but I, I took to it very, very, very quickly and I realized that it was, it was very fun, you know, mm. among other things. And it exercised certain writing muscles that felt new and it invigorated me. And the whole process seemed very seamless. I sent it to her. She pitched it to her boss. And then suddenly I'm at the table talking promotional strategies. Oh, that's how it goes sometimes. Yeah. Well, you know, it's, <laughs> it's just very interesting because, you know, some people stay in one genre and others go back and forth. So and now you're at the point you can do both, I would imagine, as a result of the publication of this book. Definitely. It feels like I have the crossover and the jump shot. Yeah, very good. (laughs) Well, I am interested in the siblings in the book because this is the second time your YA book, War Girls, two sisters are torn apart by war and fight 
their way back to each other. And you have two siblings here. So I was just curious about, do you have a sibling thing going on? Do you have siblings that you like to? And and both of them are dealing with history and future because War Girls is based on real wars, but it's set in a world that's kind of futuristic Black Panther inspired Nigeria, I'm told. So, so I was just wondering um, what that was about. Certainly. I So I am the oldest of four. <laughs> so you do have a sibling <laughs> thing. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, you know, writing through some issues. <laughs> Two younger sisters and a younger brother. And I, I discovered at some point in film school, I attended film school before I attended law school, that my best writing came when I wrote directly into my fears. When I confronted the things that that were most terrifying to contemplate or those parts of me that that felt, you know, like the deepest, most essential concerns and preoccupations that I carried within me. And one that I constantly return to is family. I love my family more than anything in the world, uh, more than writing even. And I found that the most powerful stories that I've been able to sort of pull out of me have involved issues of family. And I find that there's a very immense and unique bond with regards to family that, you know, doesn't necessarily see itself replicated in its entirety in other relationships. You can have people who feel like family but aren't blood related to you. You can have people who are blood related to you who you have very complicated relationships with. And I just find that very naughty and a source for immense drama and conflict. And as a storyteller, I'm always looking for the drama and the conflict in a Hmm. situation. Well, I also noted that anger is a theme in the book. Control rage, a little bit more specific. I see it first driven by Ella and then Kev. Why anger? And did you think suppressing the anger is kind of an underpinning of riots, if you will, coming back to the theme of your book? Certainly. I mean, you know, Dr. King said riot is the language of the of the unheard. Uh, I think another thing that was very much in the ether that attended the birth of this book, you know, in, in you know, about a half decade ago was the policing of protest. So, you know, you saw it in you saw it in Baltimore. You saw it in Ferguson. Every single time that there would be any sort of protest with regards to the deaths of black Americans at the hands of police, there were always voices saying that protesters needed to do it differently. They needed to do it in a more quiet fashion. They shouldn't block freeways. You know, they shouldn't march. They shouldn't kneel at football games even. And You know, it was as though, you know, the powers that be were trying to instruct us towards a more convenient, for them at least, you know, method of protest. And one of the things that I believed was happening was that they were trying to tampen down that anger that fueled a lot of those protests, because that seemed very much like the most dangerous and perhaps most productive aspect of it. You also saw it in personal relationships. One thing that I found very interesting was, you know, the relationship between, you know, the current generation of activists and older generations of activists, where, uh, you know, particularly in in the 60s and whatnot, you saw a lot of very disciplined, organized protests, or at least that's the picture that we get of it now. Whereas here, you see a lot of protesters and people of our generation not afraid to show that anger. And there was this, I guess you could call it a hint of respectability politics, which is to say that, oh, if you're this visibly angry, you're not going to get done the things that you want to get done. Or, 
you know, if you're this visibly angry, you're giving them a reason to come at you, to uh, enact violence upon you. And so it was very interesting to watch all the different ways in which anger was policed. And I wondered a lot what it would look like if that anger was essentially uncaged, you know, if I wrote into the fears that all of these different people had with regards to that anger breaking free of the instructions or the caging, if you will, that society had tried to enact on it. I think also, too, you know, one one element that was very important to me was I had watched the X-Men, the animated series, as a kid. And I was very much drawn to the character of Magneto and the ways in which he operated as a foil for for Professor X, who was very much, uh, I guess you could say, an analog of Dr. King. And in Magneto, you saw a lot more facility with violence against the human race and a lot more facility with with the issue of mutant domination, for instance. He felt like an angrier character. And I felt very drawn to that because I wondered if a lot of that anger wasn't fueled by a sort of futility, if you will, with regards to human-mutant mm-hmm. relations. You know, Magneto had lived through so much, including the Holocaust. He'd seen what humans were incapable of, and he'd seen in the entirety of his life the inability of humans to move past that, to move beyond that, that capacity that they had to do all this evil towards each other, but also towards, you know, people and things that they that they feared and didn't understand. And that made a very powerful impression on me as a kid. And I think one of the reasons that Ella is so angry is because of this futility that she recognizes. She's seeing all these things that happen and that have happened over the course of American history. And to her, it seems as though nothing is Mm. changing. It's just the shape of the oppression that's changing and not necessarily its substance. And that makes her Mm. angry. Tokchi Anabuchi, author of Riot Baby, his first adult novel, and our February selection for Bookmarked, the Under the Radar Book Club. That's it for this week's show. We're on the web at gbh.org news, Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, and available for download wherever you get your podcasts. Under the Radar with Callie Crossley is a production of GBH, produced by Wes Martin and Hannah Ubeli, and engineered by Dave Goodman. Angela Yang is our intern. Our theme music is Fish and Chips by We Are Two Saxies, Grace Kelly and Leo P. See you here at 6 p.m. next Sunday. I'm Callie Crossley. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.